The Lord be with you. For years, our congregation has had a tradition of once a year going down to a school and orphanage for children with special needs in Baja, Mexico. It's called Rancho Santa Marta. And there for a week, we do hard labor, usually constructing some buildings, sometimes it's farm work, but it's always hard labor in the hot sun, and it's for a good cause. Five years ago, I went down on the trip for my first time. And it was a mix of us, everyone from teenagers to people in their 70s, and we went along with St. John's Episcopal Church like we do most years. And it's about 30 of us packed into five vans and SUVs driving for two straight days. But when we got there, and I saw the school children in their uniforms processing the Mexican flag and singing hymns before the start of their school day, I knew that 20 hours in a van with teenagers was going to be worth it. We were going to build something beautiful for these kids. And so we got to work, and the head of facilities there is a man named Eronimo, and I've got a picture of him here for you. And he explained to us that our goal for struct that summer for the kids. Uh, Don't worry about that, we'll show you. And so he and a, all that takes them about half an hour and they get about 10 feet. Jackhammering is mashing buttons on an arcade machine. To be fair, we had one other adult in our crew, a woman suggest. So after a six hour to us, and that even factored in, and he would stop periodically every few minutes to come and explain to us why we were making If our goal is really to help feed us who actually know how to do construction, they could build a much better building. I will admit, she made a lot of sense. I looked around at the gas that it cost to send us down there, all the food that we were feeding these teenagers. And I looked at the quality of our construction. I said, this isn't adding up. And at the same time, I saw that after we would do our work during the day, we'd go into the local village and we'd buy tacos and Mexican candy and we had a, a beach day plan. And it's like, you know, feels like this is a lot more of an excuse for a vacation than it is actually accomplishing service. And so the next day, I went up to Jeronimo because you know, we'd only marginally improved our skill. And I said to him, we're really bad at construction. Wouldn't it be better for you if instead of coming down here and wasting your time, we just sent you the money you needed to build this thing? In our gospel lesson today, we hear the story of Mary taking a pound of pure nard. It's a costly perfume, and it says it's worth 300 denarii. That's about a year's wages for a laborer, say $40,000. She takes $40,000 worth of perfume, and she just pours it all out on Jesus' feet. And in response, Jesus' disciple Judas says, why wasn't that perfume sold and the money given to the poor? Our theme for this week is greed. And in my mind, there are three kinds of greed. 
and I associate them with how much money you have to start off with. The first type of greed I associate with people with like Scrooge McDuck, you know, the, the Disney character who swims in a pool of money, yeah. People like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, billionaires who have literally more money than they can spend in their lifetime. For people like that, greed is just a game. People are pawns and money is just a way to keep score between billionaires of who's more successful at the businesses that they run. But then there's the second type of greed. And I associate the second type of greed with, with poverty. In seminary, I went to visit the Lutheran churches in Tanzania, and I met a local pastor, and he was explaining to me that growing up in his village, all anyone had to eat was corn mush. The big luxury there was rice. To have rice for dinner meant that you had made it. And so one night, someone gave his family a bag of rice to eat for dinner. And afterwards, as a child, he took one of the grains of rice and he stuck it in the corner of his mouth. And then he walked outside to go play with his friends. So all his friends would say, did you have rice for dinner? And be like, oh, what, this? Oh, I, I guess we did, yeah. <laughs> to say this second type of greed, curiously, in an attempt to gain honor, an attempt to gain respect. But then there is a third type of greed. It's the type of greed that I associate with the middle class, people who have enough money if they use it wisely. And in this type of greed, it's not about accumulating money or even spending money. It's about managing money well. In this type of greed, money is a resource to be managed. And siblings in Christ, this is my kind of greed, right? Back in seminary, I wanted to save money. So I figured out I could live on about $10 a week if I just ate nothing but rice and beans and whatever vegetable was on discount at the local market. Tasted terrible, but financially it was fantastic. I only stopped it because eventually I realized that the resulting flatulence was affecting my ministry. <laughs> now today I'm married and my wife does most of the cooking, so my culinary standards have risen dramatically. But on Fridays, my wife will sometimes say to me, Honey, it's the weekend, why don't we go out to a nice restaurant for dinner? And I'll say, or we could stay home, have rice and beans, take the saving, put it in a high-interest account, and then in two years we'll have enough money to take a romantic vacation to Europe. And by romantic, I mean I will spring for a hotel that has a private bathroom. Yes. <laughs> when we bought our current house, it had original appliances from the 1970s. We're talking about an oven where the temperature inside the oven never matches what you put on the dial. And my wife said, you know, we have a little money left over. Why don't we spend that money buying up-to-date appliances for our kitchen? And I said, or we could invest that money in solar panels, and from the money that we save paying PG&E in 10 years, we can renovate the whole kitchen. Now, my wife may be stuck with appliances that are half a century old, but you better believe she is happy to have married a man who knows how to manage his money. Yes! If she were here, she would nod in agreement, I have no doubt. But I can tell you from firsthand experience that this type of greed turns life into a ledger 
every action becomes a transaction with a cost and a benefit. And that doesn't apply just to purchases, it applies to everything. It applies to time, because time is money, and so you best optimize how you use it. It can even apply to relationships. Every relationship becomes a transaction where you think about, well, what am I putting into this relationship and what am I getting out? It can even apply to what God will do for me in return. This transactional faith is what Paul describes in Philippians 3. When he lists all the reasons that he has to be confident in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day, an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, uh, with regard to the law, a Pharisee. Paul is maximizing his side of the equation so he can ensure the best rate of return from God on the other side. But here's the problem with transactional faith. Not only does it take every single moment that we are given as a gift from God to celebrate and turn it into just another resource to, mag- to manage, what it also does is it limits life's possibilities. By turning life into a ledger, it limits what life can achieve and what it can be because the whole point of a ledger is that it lists everything that you have and it lists what everything else costs and it tells you exactly what is possible because what is possible is only what you can afford. Judas has a transactional faith with Jesus. Judas sees Jesus as the great ledger keeper, and Jesus has said we should care for the poor. And so Judas looks at the resources that he and the disciples have, and he calculates how much care for the poor they can afford. Now, I'm ignoring John's commentary that Judas doesn't actually care about the poor, that he just wants to steal the money. I'm ignoring that because Jesus ignores it. Jesus takes Judas's comment at base value, and so do I. Judas sees this costly perfume just poured out wastefully on Jesus' feet. He calculates what that's worth, and he calculates the ministry that could have been done in Jesus' name. And it is with that transactional faith of Judas that I in Rancho Santa Marta, covered in sweat and concrete, came up to Eronimo and said, wouldn't it be better for you if we just stayed home and sent you money instead? And Eronimo looked at me and said, no. And I said, but wouldn't you be able to build these things so much more efficiently and effectively? And he looked at me and he said, maybe but then we wouldn't know each other. There is a hubris to those of us who have transactional faith. We spend so much time thinking about how to manage our own resources that we assume we know best for other people how they should manage theirs. But Eronimo isn't interested in a transactional faith. He's interested in a transformative faith. He's interested in transformative faith like the faith of Mary in John chapter 12. 
because in John chapter 12, Jesus has already raised Mary's brother Lazarus from the dead. It is an incredible act which Mary can never repay. And so she doesn't try. Instead, Mary takes what would have been a fortune in her community, likely her life savings, likely all the money that she owns, and she uses it to buy costly perfume, perfume used to anoint the body of the dead. Likely this is the very perfume that she had bought a week earlier to anoint the body of her brother Lazarus before Jesus raises him to new life. Mary takes all the money that she has, she buys this perfume, and she pours all of it out on Jesus' feet. She pours out all that she has, all that she is onto Jesus. And then she washes his feet. Washing feet is the act that a servant does for a master. But Mary doesn't wash Jesus' feet like a servant. She washes Jesus' feet using her hair. In the ancient Near East, women would always cover their hair in public. They'd only let down their hair in the presence of family. In that moment, Mary is making Jesus into her brother. But more than that, the scripture doesn't say that Mary washes Jesus' feet the scripture says that she anoints Jesus' feet. The word Christ, it literally means the anointed one. Mary makes Jesus the anointed one. She makes Jesus Christ. Mary isn't interested in Judas's transactional relationship. She wants to be transformed by Jesus. And so she enters into the most profound, most intimate, most sacred relationship she can possibly imagine with Jesus. She makes him her master, her brother, her Christ. She does all this because she has looked at the math of this man and she knows it doesn't make sense. And so rather than try to balance Jesus in the ledger book of her life, Mary breaks herself open and pours out the entirety of who she is onto Jesus that she might be transformed by him. Transformed into infinite possibility. It is this transformational faith that Jeronimo knows is more valuable than money. That same evening after I had asked Jeronimo this, when we got done working, some of the boys from the school came up to our cabins to say hello to us. And along with them came, you know, one of their caretakers. And when that caretaker saw Father Richard from St. John's Episcopal Church, he said, he roared, miraculous, Richard! And Richard looked at him, and his face lit up, and he said, Victor! And they ran, and they embraced each other in this big old bear hug. It turns out 
Father Richard has been going to Rancho Santa Marta with us for decades, right? Our congregation has gone there for as long as I have been alive, and Father Richard has seen Victor go from one of these boys at the school for special needs to becoming one of the staff people caring for the next generation of kids. They barely speak a word of each other's language, but over the years, they have built a friendship of mutual respect and trust. I have a a wonderful picture of them arm wrestling right here. To say this is the relationships that have been built at Rancho Santa Marta over the decades. Anna Brink Capriola, many of you know, she grew up here in this congregation. When she was a teenager, she attended Rancho Santa Marta. The experience she had there, the joy she found meeting the people and serving with them and serving them inspired her to go on and join the Peace Corps. She came back 10 years later after she had gone to Rancho Santa Marta. She came back on that same trip with me. The people there still remembered her name. They rejoiced to see her. The next day, we broke up into small groups, and in the evening, we got to eat dinner in the homes of the children who lived at the school. And afterwards, we played cops and robbers with them, and they trounced us. And then the next day, we invited them over for dinner at our camp, and we had hot dogs, and afterward, we played volleyball, and they trounced us. And then we realized we had to stop playing on opposite teams. We had to start mixing up the teams so that anyone would have a chance of winning from our side. But it wasn't just the relationships with the people at Rancho Santa Marta that were being built. It was relationships within our own congregation. Nicole, that English professor who was so disgusted by her ineffectiveness at construction, she went on that trip knowing only me and going through an incredible hard time in her life where her mother was in the throes of alcoholism. But on that trip, she sat down to a stranger who had come with us, a father who went down with his son, and he started to share with her his own story with addiction and how that had shaped his relationship with his son. And in that moment, Nicole realized she wasn't alone. She had someone who understood and could support her. And on that day that we went to the beach, which I wrote off as a waste of time, Nicole got to spend that time walking with Kai, one of the guys who runs our AV desk. They spent the whole time on the beach talking about movies and music. They came back best of friends. In her time at Rancho Santa Marta, Nicole not only fell in love with the service that we did there, she found her place within this congregation. The next year, she became our most enthusiastic recruiter to get people to go down with us. Had we sent just money to Rancho Santa Marta, we would have built a building more effectively. But that is the only possibility of what would have come out of it. Instead, we went and we built relationships with the people of Rancho Santa Marta. We built them up and they built us up. We did eventually manage to build that retaining wall and that sidewalk, but most importantly, we built up the body of Christ who transforms this world into infinite possibility. At the end of the week, as we were getting ready to leave, Adonimo and Victor and some of the boys, they came and gathered around us to say goodbye. And Adonimo asked me, he said, well, you're going to come back next year? 
And what was I going to say? Well, you know, I thought about it, and I feel like the most efficient use of our money would be to send it down, because that way we can maximize the care we give to the poor. And we'll do that for a year or two, and then we'll see if maybe there's some other poor who are more deserving. No. The people of Rancho Santa Marta are not some generic poor to whom we write a check and forget in a transactional relationship. For that transactional attitude, it is that transactional attitude that ensures the poor will always be with us. The people of Rancho Santa Marta are our siblings in Christ. We go down there to work for them and with them because in them we have known Jesus. In our relationship with them, we are transformed. We are transformed by Christ. We are transformed to be Christ in whom all things are possible. God does not want a transactional faith, but a transformational one. When Paul has listed all the reasons he has to be confident in his flesh all the ways in which he's sure that his transaction has been maximized with God, he then goes on to say in Philippians 3 that all of that he considers loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord. Paul thought he had all the possibilities in God penciled out, but then in Jesus, God transformed Paul's life and unleashed a whole new world of possibilities. In Jesus, God pours out God's self. Jesus is that costly perfume. And like Mary, God breaks open all that God has in Jesus and pours it out upon us because what God wants more than anything is a relationship with us that will transform us, that will transform the world and unleash possibilities that we could never imagine. And so, siblings in Christ, may we be good stewards of all that God gives us. And when our greed tempts us to transform everything into a transaction, to limit life's possibility to a ledger, may we, like Mary, break open our souls and let ourselves be poured out into Christ who pours himself out into us, who transforms us with limitless grace into possibilities that we can yet imagine. Amen.